And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. Hello everyone and welcome to Earth Destruction Directive. I am your host as always, Mr. Luke Giaconetti. would like to thank everyone for downloading and listening to the show today. Hope everyone enjoyed our last episode where I took a look at the third Ultraman Zero film, Ultraman Saga. Today we're going to be taking a look at uh, a little bit of a change of pace. It's, it's a science fiction movie, but it could also maybe be a monster movie, depending on, I guess, which version you watch, as we're going to take a look at Gorath from Toho Studios from 1962. Uh, now, news this time out, unfortunately, we have some, some very sad news to report. Uh, Jason David Frank, beloved star of Power Rangers, has died at the age of 49 years old due to suicide. Uh, I was in middle school when uh, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers started airing, and like a lot of folks my age, Tommy Oliver, as portrayed by Jason David Frank, made a real impression on me. You know, this character of a, a bad guy turned tragic hero, turned commander, turned mentor, turned legend, you know, was, was the face of the franchise. Uh, but he was also known as a martial artist, a sensei, and an MMA fighter. Fans across the globe have poured out their grief over Frank's death, with countless tributes cropping up in the wake of his passing. Personally speaking, uh, I can only say that I was shocked and saddened by his death, as I am by any suicide. Every life has value and is worth living, but you know we all have our own demons, which with you know, which we have to battle. Every single one of us faces these challenges. Now, some of these demons are small; they're manageable. Others, they're far more powerful and sinister. So I would ask that everyone out there listening, please, please keep fighting. You're not alone. You are important. If someone in your life is having a tough time, reach out to them. Be there for them. Support them however you can. You know, we have to take care of each other in this world. If you are struggling with thoughts of self-harm or suicide, please reach out to someone or contact 988, which is the number for Suicide Prevention Hotline, available 24 hours a day in English or Spanish here in the United States. You can also text the word STRENGTH to the crisis text line at 741-741. You can also go to 988lifeline.org. Now, we will have a great letter from a listener in the final segment of this episode remembering Jason David Frank, so please make sure and stay tuned to that. And please take care of each other, guys. That's that's all I can say. All right. Sorry to start the episode on, on such a downbeat note, but, uh, you know, sometimes life throws that at you, right? So... Uh, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen, and I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterman Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes crossover events that can cost a hundred bucks to collect. Join me in the quarter bin 
where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast in iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Gorath, uh, under the Japanese title Yosei Gorasu, literally Calamity Star Gorath, was released to Japanese theaters on March 21st, 1962. Gorath made its way to the U.S. from Brenko Pictures with an English-language dub on May 15th, 1964. Our writer is Takeshi Kimura, one of the mainstay Toho writers from this era. Uh, Kimura is best known for Rodan, also received writing credits for The Mysterians, The H-Man, The Last War, Matango, Frankenstein Conquers the World, War of the Gargantuas, King Kong Escapes, and others. Uh, you're going to hear The Mysterians quite a lot. That's one of two movies you're going to hear quite a lot as we talk about this. Now, there's also a credit for based on a story by Jojiro Okami. Okami was a former Japanese Air Force pilot who is also credited with stories ideas on, wait for it, The Mysterians. Battle in Outer Space, that's the other one you're going to hear a few times, and Dogra. So obviously he contributed some ideas to some of these uh, science fiction uh, films that Toho was producing in this era. Special effects were by Eji Tsuburaya, the legendary special effects man who worked on just about every Japanese science fiction film in this period, and would of course go on a couple years later to create Ultraman through his TV enterprise. Uh, Our director is Ishiro Honda, similarly of course Honda, a legend in the daikaiju genre, directing everything from Gojira to Rodan to Mothra to Ghidorah to Monster Zero to Destroy All Monsters and many, many more. Now, specifically of note for Gorath is that he also directed, that's right, The Mysterians and Battle in Outer Space. And I promise we will talk about why I keep mentioning those films uh, a little bit later on. And our producer is Tomoyuki Tanaka, a longtime producer at Toho, handled pretty much every genre release for the company uh, up until his death in 1997. So our synopsis today comes from Wikizilla, and uh, Wikizilla, of course, a great resource for uh, um, Daikaiju and uh, Tokusatsu uh, fans, Toho fans. So uh, we're going to get right into it. As Tomoko Sonoda and Taikiko Nomura prepare to go swimming in a lake, they are startled by the nearby launch of the rocket ship JX-1 Hayabusa. The car radio informs them that Tomoko's father, Raizo, is the captain. Their mission is to observe a rogue star called Gorath. With a mass 6,000 times that of Earth, it is on a course to pass dangerously close to the planet. When they find it, however, its incredible gravitational pull starts to drag the ship in. Realizing the ship is doomed, Raizo tearfully orders the crew to collect as much data as possible and transmit it back to Earth in the time they have left. Tomoko and Nomura encounter cadet astronaut Tatsuma Kanai, fooling around in a robot costume at a Christmas celebration. As he slips past his fellow officers, Nomura praises his determination in the astronaut program. When Tomoko returns home, she is swarmed by reporters and finds a memorial to her father with dozens in attendance. Her grandfather, paleontologist Kensuke Sonoda, consoles her as she weeps for him. The Japanese government struggles to make sense of his data, as Gorath is only three-fourths of Earth's size. An investigation led by doctors Kono and Tazawa deliver their findings, verified by their colleagues in the United States. Gorath is on a collision course with Earth. 
Dr. Kono requests that they take part in a UN effort to save the planet. Gorath's existence is quickly revealed to the public. With the JX-2 Otori under construction, Kenai continues his training. He and his fellow astronauts rush to meet Captain Endo when he arrives at this facility, only for him to silently turning away, signaling that their mission to Gorath has not yet been scheduled. Kenai and several others keep their spirits up by taking a joyride in a helicopter and singing of space exploration. They then pay a visit to Secretary of Space Murata and petition him to authorize the launch of the JX-2. He informs them that the issue is a budgetary one, as JX-1 was incredibly expensive, but he's recently secured the needed funds. Riding through Tokyo in a taxi, Kono and Tozawa are struck by how unconcerned their driver and the rest of the populace seem. In a speech at the United Nations headquarters in New York, Kono presents humanity's two options, destroy Gorath or move Earth out of its path. Regarding the latter plan, Tozawa has calculated that the Earth must be over 400,000 kilometers from Gorath when it passes by. Heavy water nuclear reactors will provide the necessary fuel. Every country with a nuclear program pledges to declassify its research to aid in the operation. Back in Tokyo, Tozawa gives a presentation at the Diet Building showing the destruction Earth would face if Gorath passed within 200,000 kilometers. Earthquakes, volcanic eruptions, and the oceans and atmosphere sucked into space. The Japanese government receives a request from the UN to dispatch the JX-2, which it immediately accepts. Vice Captain Saiki arrives at a dance to deliver the news to the astronauts. Only Kanai, visiting Nomura, is absent. Unsure if he'll return from the mission, Kanai presents her with an ornate necklace, but she rejects him. Her fiancé was one of the astronauts aboard JX-1, and she refuses to accept that he's dead. Enraged, Kanai throws his picture out the window and storms out. JX-2 launches and passes the French, Portuguese, and Czechoslovakian international space stations that discovered Gorath. Endo remarks that such cooperation between nations would have been impossible before the United Nations. Work begins on a field of rockets in the South Pole to move the Earth. Tragedy strikes, however, when one of the atomic burrowers causes a catastrophic cave-in, costing some 60 days of work to the schedule. Approaching Gorath, JX-2 finds its gravitational pull has increased since it destroyed JX-1, a consequence of Gorath absorbing space debris along its journey. Kenai, piloting a probe called Capsule-1, launches to collect data on the star, with Endo cautioning him not to risk his life. Unable to get a reading on Gorath's mass, he soon disregards his orders. Space debris strikes one of Capsule-1's thrusters, and as Gorath's surface flashes with colorful explosions, Kenai manages to escape the scar's pull just in time. However, the traumatic experience has caused him to lose his memory. The JX-2 docks at one of the space stations so the data gathered can be analyzed. Back on Earth, the rockets in Antarctica fire successfully. Tomoko calls Tozawa via video phone to congratulate him, with his colleagues and her younger brother egging them on. He is uneasy, however, believing more rockets need to be added to account for Gorath's ever-growing mass. Kono opposes the idea, but promises to consider it. After Tozawa leaves with Tomoko, Dr. Kono muses that the UN has concluded that nothing short of a miracle will save the Earth, even if Tozawa gets his additional rockets. Gorath's pull is simply too powerful. Tomoko consoles Tozawa, saying that he at least gave humanity hope, and the two embrace. 
In Antarctica, an enormous walrus-like reptile suddenly attacks a UN base, though the outside world initially believes an earthquake has caused the destruction. Kensuke theorizes it is an animal after studying a blood sample. He theorizes it was awakened by the rockets warming its habitat. A VTOL jet spots the monster and fires a laser at a nearby mountain, burying it in rubble. Kensuke and Kono land and try to observe it up close, but it quickly breaks free, prompting them to withdraw. Left with no other choice, the VTOL attacks the monster, dubbed Maguma, directly, its laser quickly killing it. Just before landing on Earth, the crew of the JX-2 watch as Gorath absorbs the rings of Saturn. Tomoko and Nomura prepare to evacuate Tokyo, though Nomura believes there's nowhere to run. Two of Kanai's colleagues bring him to them in the hopes of restoring his memory, but he fails to recognize the girls. Still, they agree to take them with him. Gorath becomes visible in the sky as the exodus continues, then consumes the moon. Tidal waves flood Tokyo, an earthquake swallows up the JX-2 along with a village near the Sonoda house. Tidal waves strike the UN base in Antarctica as well, but the rockets persist. Watching Gorath on television, a terrified Kenai's memory is restored. All are silent as Gorath passes the earth. Drenched in sweat, Tazawa announces that they have succeeded, and the base erupts in celebration. The rockets shut down as Tazawa and a colleague contemplate the task ahead, returning the Earth to its original orbit. The Sonodas, Kenai, and Nomura watch as floodwaters slowly recede from Tokyo. The United Nations deliver a message to the world. Everyone, we have just begun. Together, we overcame the doom of the suspicious star, Gorath. If we could come together and cooperate to overcome the danger that threatened us, can't we take this opportunity to work together for all eternity? Well, that certainly was a, a change of pace, even if it wasn't earth-shattering. Eh? Eh? All right, let's get into the notes. Gorath is the third of three, what I call, Earth is Threatened science fiction films from Toho in this period. Beginning with The Mysterians from 1957, go back and check out episode 37 for that, and then with Battle in Outer Space two years after that, which we've not covered on Earth Destruction Directive, but check out Nathan Marchand and I discussing over on the Monster Island Film Vault. All three feature the planet facing disaster thanks to an external threat from outer space. Gorath takes a different approach in that the titular star, planet, heavenly body, whatever, it's not sentient, it has no malicious intent. It just happens to be on a collision course with Earth. This suggests that Gorath is more of a what we might call a hard science fiction than its two cohorts, with their alien invaders and fleets of flying saucers. Ultimately, all three films espouse different aspects of true science fiction, but all are also ultimately mainstream movies with a high destruction factor there to entertain the audience. That there is a whole subgenre of disaster movies involving meteors or other objects striking Earth just goes to show how potent a story engine it is. Ranging from movies like 1951's When Worlds Collide through to 1979's Meteor, which has one of the greatest lines in film history involving a broom being shoved somewhere, I swear I'm not making this up, to good old 1998, when we got not one, but two big budget versions with deep impact and Armageddon, both being released that year. Now, if disaster film is based on spectacle, putting big-name stars or, you know, maybe one or two big-name stars and a lot of medium-name stars in the middle of a widescreen earthquake or fire or capsized ship or killer bee swarm, it's made for the big screen. 
what disaster could be bigger than the entire Earth being wiped out in one fell swoop? And to see Toho, themselves no stranger to widescreen spectacle, handling such a film is appropriate, if still a little bit quaint when you get down to it. Now, the story of Gorath directly informs the main themes of the film, which really nail it down to the early 1960s in Japan. Specifically, the idea of science saving the world from politics and international unity and cooperation paving the way for great accomplishments really, really make me think that early, that that post-war, you know, early um, Showa period. An early scene where several politicians bemoan the price tag of the lost JX-1, it quickly establishes that the political sphere is not going to be very helpful in this crisis. There's even a line at the Diet building that goes in the dub, this is no longer a time for statesmen. Now, at first, I'd found this sort of optimism at odds with writer Kimura's more typically downbeat style. But one can view this particular element as Kimura saying, look how much humanity can achieve if it wasn't for all the politicians. And I suppose that most sci-fi viewers would appreciate and you know, likely agree with that sentiment. I mean, it's all right there in the final monologue, as if the movie and by extension Kimura and Honda, are saying, hey, you people in the audience, remember, if you aren't a player in good standing on the international stage, yeah, you run the risk of your planet blowing up. The scenes of the UN similarly lean into this attitude of the great things which can be accomplished when nations work together, with Japan front and center in the action, of course. The line about the world being separated by race before the UN does seem a little on the nose, almost suggesting it was satirical. I'm not going to go that far and say that, but I did kind of think that. Additionally, the UN scenes also provide a somewhat unique situation, cinematically, where Japan is not only a team player, but also the best player on the field. The superiority of Japan's technology is not only implied, it's stated outright. The JX series of ships are described as the outright best of their type on the planet, and Japan's advancement in nuclear decontamination, where other nations have lagged, is one of the keys to the South Pole project being approved to proceed. Unsurprisingly, both of these moments were cut from the U.S. version. Beyond the thematic elements, Gorath has bona fides as a straight-up science fiction movie as well. The outer space scenes are well-constructed and generally tense, fitting the mood. Kenai's probe ship expedition to take data on Gorath, where he quickly becomes overwhelmed by the massive star, is creepy and off-putting. That Kenai becomes an amnesiac after his highly traumatic experience echoes back to Kimura using a similar tool, albeit better realized, with the character of Shigeru in Rodan. Similarly, the scenes of construction and execution of the South Pole project were intriguing for me as an engineer, and Honda does a really great job of ratcheting up the tension as the clock continues to count down. Where Gorath fails to engage me as a viewer is its characters. Kimura and Honda want us to care about these people and their own challenges and dramas. But, frankly, it's tough to become invested in them. Ryu Ikebe, who plays Tozawa, best known in these parts for also being in Battle in Outer Space and The War in Space. How's it going, Jimmy? Uh, he, but beyond that, he had a huge filmography spanning all the way back to 1942, all the way through 1988, uh, and all sorts of different, um, uh, genres and, and types of films for different studios in Japan. Now, Tozawa is the most interesting character of the bunch, and I like Ikebe's performance, but what makes Tozawa interesting is his dogged determination. He's not a funny or action-oriented character. Rather, it's his drive to achieve the South Pole project and save the Earth. That's what makes him memorable. He's also involved in the best character scene in the film, 
as when riding through uh, in riding through the streets of Tokyo, he laments the population's lack of concern about the impending doom. I compare this performance quite positively against that of Akira Kubo, a familiar Toho player later in his career, who plays Kanai. It's hard to say whether it's the writing or the performance, but I never once warmed a Kanai in this picture. It seems that Honda and Kimura want us to root for him, to be on his side, but he either comes off as unlikable when he throws the picture of Nomura's fiance out the window, or reckless when he steals a helicopter, or just downright weird when he's playing around dressed as a robot or playing around in the zero-gravity training facility. Sadly, I can say the same about both female leads, both played again by Toho regulars. Tomoko, Tozawa's love interest, is played by Yumi Shirakawa. Uh, she was in Rodan, she was in The Mysterians, The H-Man. Um, but other than Tomoko being devoted to Tozawa, and frankly pretty tired of her brother's crap, she doesn't have much to define her character. She ends up moving around so that other characters can have someone to talk to, which is a terrible thing for a female character. Nomura, who's played by another Toho legend, Kumi Mizuno, she's also not particularly well-developed. Her mood towards Kanai seems to change somewhat fluidly and ultimately is not given all that much to do in the story. It is unfortunate that Gorath suffers from this sort of uninteresting human element, as that would have certainly helped the creeping dread and tension if characters which we actually cared about were in harm's way. Now, a few other Toho regulars also appear in smaller roles. Jun Tazaki plays the captain of the JX-1, not real surprising as he always seems to be a general or a commander or some authority figure. Uh, Akihiko Harada pops up as the captain of the JX-2. He unfortunately does not have all that much to do here, but Harada is always a welcome sight. Similarly, Kenji Sahara, a personal favorite of mine from both the Showa and Heisei eras, specifically Shigeru from Rodan, has a minor role as the vice captain of the JX-2. And Takashi Shimura, yes, Dr. Yamane himself, also appears as Tomoko's grandfather, who is also, wait for it, a scientist. The presence of these regulars is much appreciated by me as a viewer, even if they do not add much to the overall film. This leaves the special effects as the main appeal for the movie, and in that sense, Gorath does not disappoint. There are many scenes where Eji Tsuburaya and crew get to flex their miniature model muscles. The JX-1 and JX-2 evoke a 1950s atomic age motif in their design, more reflective of a submarine than a rocket ship, putting them in line with earlier Toho space operas. The detailed models combine with the optical effects of different rocket engines firing to make these ships quite charming and fun on the big screen. Gorath itself is an impressive piece of effects work. The fiery red orb is suitably menacing as it tumbles through space, and the effect of other heavenly bodies being smashed by it do well in establishing its incredible size. Similarly, the shot of Saturn's rings being pulled off by Gorath's gravity and absorbed into its mass is arresting and beautiful. I loved that shot. Amusingly, the U.S. version adds a whining sort of sound effect for Gorath, reminiscent of, but not exactly the same as the traditional Subaru UFO sound. I like the silent, grim nature of Gorath in the Japanese film, but I must admit that that sound effect really charms me, reminding me of other Showa films where something flying through space would have a whiny sound to it. The story also allows Subaraya and company to handle some additional, more unusual models. As the South Pole operation gets underway, we get a fleet of cargo ships, including an American icebreaker ship smashing through the ice. The South Pole site itself is a hornet's nest of activities, with many transport vehicles, conveyor belts, earth movers, cranes, 
helicopters, prefab dome buildings, and more, all moving in a complex dance of models and miniatures. It's an extremely complex scene, all to demonstrate the scale and scope of the work being done on the site. And as someone who spent a good deal of time on industrial sites because of my career, I really appreciated this sequence. And naturally, being a Toho film, we do get to see some of this stuff go tumbling into Earth when the cave-in happens. Most unique of all is the jet tubes themselves, a huge miniature of the South Pole, with several dozen jet engines essentially sprouting from the ice like strange flowers. When these jets all fire, it is a satisfyingly massive amount of pyro which is splashed onto the screen. Teriyoshi Nakano, who was an assistant on this film, must have been proud. One has to imagine this was difficult to coordinate and film, given all the different pyrotechnic pieces which all had to be fired at the same time. It really is very, very impressive. And the last reel of the film gives us some opportunity for widespread destruction, which is why most of us are here. Oddly enough, this is somewhat disappointing considering the subject matter. We do get some wonderful flood shots, including one wiping out a train in motion, and some landslides wiping out mountains. The effects are well executed, but they're not ultimately much different than similar scenes we have seen previously. Specifically, these scenes reminded me of the destruction shots from the Mysterians, which had been reused the same year in the U.S. version of King Kong vs. Godzilla. Neither do we get anything as crazy as the gravity weapon shots from the end of Battle in Outer Space. But overall, I think it is more than fair to say that Gorath has more special effect shots than either of those two earlier films. This particular aspect does seem to be outshined a little bit by its predecessors. However, in the interest of fairness, I must mention the final shot of the flooded Tokyo, simply amazing. And the Japanese version's longer cut of that shot is a definite plus over the shorter cuts in the U.S. version. Two items I want to mention for their connection to the Ultraman series. First off, the VTOL vehicle which we see at the South Pole site should look awfully familiar as it became the basis for the jet VTOL from Ultraman. Similarly, the handheld propulsion torch used by the crew of the JX-2 during the rescue of Kenai is easily recognized as a Rashi spider shotgun, although here it is a tool rather than a weapon. The spider shot especially brought a grin to my face. And of course, the biggest Ultraman reference of all is the presence of Mazanari Nihei as a member of the JX crew, best known for playing Ide on the original Ultraman. Of course, the elephant, or if you prefer, walrus, in the room is the monster, Maguma, one of the most infamous of the entire pantheon of Toho monsters. The story goes that the original script for Gorath did not include a monster. Producer Tomoyuki Tanaka wanted to add a monster under the approach that a monster will bring in more money, and that a Honda Tsuburaya science fiction movie should have a monster. Honda was opposed to this change, but eventually relented and worked with Tsuburaya on the design. Now, Kimura's script calls Maguma a dinosaur, but he looks much more like a reptilian walrus than anything else. Now, overall, the creature only appears in one sequence that's about six minutes long, and other than providing another obstacle for our heroes, does not serve much of a role in the story. Now, Maguma's suit would be reused by Tsuburaya a few years later as the monster Tadola in an episode of Ultra Q, and the monster was originally tapped to appear in Destroy All Monsters, but that did not come to pass. Ultimately, while I am always in favor of a new Daikaiju in a Honda or Tsuburaya film, Maguma's not much of a presence. The near total removal of the monster in the U.S. version, from a story standpoint, frankly, it's not much of a loss. 
Honda was later quoted that Gorath would have been his favorite film that he directed if not for the Maguma sequence. So Maguma's value to this film remains up for debate. Now, speaking of the U.S. Virgin, Gorath made its way to the States in 1964, as I said, courtesy of Brenko Pictures, the same studio who had handled the earlier U.S. release of The Last War. The film was redubbed and cut down, with music from The Last War added, along with a six-minute prologue about outer space, at least for its premiere. The story goes that that, pr- that prologue was stripped after the initial premiere, and then in wide release it didn't happen. Brenko re-released the film a few years later on a double feature with another Toho film, The Human Vapor, but evidently was never able to manage to make money from Gorath. Eventually, the film was sold to Heritage Pictures and further cut down to a running time of a scant 77 minutes, which is the version found on video and occasionally airing on television. One of the stranger changes to the U.S. version is that a layer of fog is optically printed over all of the disaster scenes, likely Brenko trying to hide what they deem to be inferior effects. Generally, while the Japanese version is a better film, U.S. version's not a bad picture. It's shorter running time speeding things up considerably. Now, one change, which I rather like on the U.S. version, is the new title shot. While the Japanese original uses a fairly stock Toho opening of credits over static shots of space and models from later in the film, the U.S. version shows us Gorath itself, with the fiery star whirling towards the camera, followed by the new bright red title also zooming towards the audience until the title becomes so large it passes through the frame. Of course, the title sequence doesn't change the story, but I definitely prefer that title over the Stater original. Now, those interested in the U.S. version should check out John LeMay's excellent book, The Lost Cuts, Editing Japanese Giant Monsters Volume 1, as he does a deep dive on every change in edit made to the U.S. version of Gorath. Highly recommended. Now, while Gorath is not a bad film by any stretch, it is not one of the best from the era from Toho either. I enjoyed the story and the science fiction elements, but ultimately the characters are not engaging or compelling enough for the audience to really be concerned about their personal dramas. The effects are a real treat for Tsuburaya fans, and the idea of Toho doing a straight-up space disaster movie certainly has a lot of appeal. Overall, I think Gorath is a must for completists. May still appeal to casual viewers, though, due to its familiar Earth-is-in-peril subject matter. Now, if you would like to see Gorath, well, that might be difficult. The uncut Japanese version of Gorath has not been released in any format here in the West. There is a Japanese Blu-ray available, but as often the case for those releases, it doesn't have English subtitles, which can present a challenge. The U.S. version has not been released on disc, although you can find several long-out-of-print VHS editions on the secondary market, which is actually how I own the film. Given the film's hard-to-find nature, there are quality bootlegs available, formerly from outfits such as Sumo Gorilla and Cult Action, although both of those now seemingly are gone. Uh, You can find the boots on on eBay and other places like that. Uh, Additionally, the U.S. version is available on the Internet Archive. If you'd like to see it that way, maybe just check it out. So now I throw it to you, the listeners. What do you think? Have you seen Gorath? Do you think it's uh, one of the the better... uh, science fiction efforts from Toho, or does it go towards the, the the bottom? Do you like space disaster movies? Do you wish they'd stick to monsters? What do you think about Maguma? Should Maguma have been cut, or should he have stayed in? And should he have come back? Write in, let me know, Directive at yahoo.com. We'll talk about it here on the show. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to get to listener feedback and closing out the show here on Earth Destruction Directive. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, this is Jason Giaconetti. You may recognize my voice from the Vault of Starling Monster Horror Tales of Terror. And if you don't, you should be listening. 
But today I need to ask you a few questions. Do you like big bugs and you cannot lie? Other robots just can't deny that when the queen of space walks in and puts a blast in your face that your gears get sprung? Are you deep in the bee we're sharing? Are you hooked and you can't stop staring? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then have I got a podcast for you. Bots, Bugs, and Babes, the B-Movie Podcast. From classics to cults and all the yummy, yummy cheese in between. Look for my new show, Bots, Bugs, and Babes, on the Two True Freaks Network and on iTunes. That's Bots, Bugs, and Babes, the B-Movie Podcast. Double J on the Triple B is your hookup. Holler if you hear me. All right, we are back on Earth Destruction Directive. Now it's time for a little bit of listener feedback. If you would like to get in touch with the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirectiveidaho.com. You can find me on Twitter and Facebook and YouTube. Just listen to the outro and you'll get all the information that you need. So our first email comes from Billy D, Bill Dunleavy, and is entitled Bloodthirsty Trilogy. And Billy writes, hey man, just wanted to chime in about these old films. I enjoy them quite a bit, but I need a rewatch as I haven't seen them in a few years. I like what they were going for with the hammer look and feel, but I do think the editing was a bit lackluster, unless the TV version I saw was just not great. Otherwise, cool, spooky films for the season. Cheers, Billy D slash Doc Strange. Uh, yeah, Billy, first of all, thank you for writing in. And uh, yeah, that, I, I, I agree. I, I don't know that they're quite as stylish as the Hammer films. Uh, but you know, they're also, they're, they're Eastern films versus Western films, right? And so you get different ideas of how to block things out and shoot things. Please, if you get a chance to, uh, to watch them and those, all three of those are available on, I think they're on Tubi, so they can be streamed. Uh, please, I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on them and, and if they hold up to your memories of them. I said, I had never seen any of them. So doing the vampire doll and then Lake of Dracula, I'm looking forward to, to doing uh, evil Dracula, I think is the third one, right? Uh, next year. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I've enjoyed the first two, so I'm definitely looking forward to it. Thank you very much, Billy, for writing in. All right, and our second email comes from Robert Ludwig, the most sane man among us. And Robert writes with the subject, Christmas Power Rangers. Luke, I am writing this while listening to the last Earth Destruction Directive episode number 112. I waved, as you just mentioned me, for supporting the show. I first want to thank you for bringing the giant monsters to life as I listened to the podcast. This would include the Ultraman episodes, as I am completely unfamiliar with the character. Now it is almost that time again, Christmas. Other than the first season or two of Power Rangers, I really know nothing of the series after that. It is always interesting to hear the Christmas episodes of Power Rangers you bring, so I am looking forward to the one this year. The reason I was even thinking about it was the unfortunate passing of Jason David Frank. His Green Ranger was always my favorite, at least from the few episodes I watched. Dragonzord was the best. Reminds me of some monster that sometimes gets covered on Earth Destruction Directive. I had a brief interaction with Jason David Frank back in 2015. Wizard World brought its comic to Des Moines, Iowa for the first time. I got a ticket for all three days for me, and JDF was going to be there on day three. I had already planned to bring my son that day, and had already seen all I really wanted to by myself. Plus, he was seven and was free. He watched a small handful of whatever Power Rangers series was going on at the time, so he knew who the Power Rangers were. I told him that one of the, quote, original Power Rangers was going to be there, and we were going to see him. It was interesting. JDF talked a little bit about the show at first, but was interested in getting the kids up and trying some martial arts. Everyone spread out, and, and he started. It was fun watching all those young kids trying. He walked around and would help kids having trouble. In between, he would do a little more talking about the show. Then he asked the kids to stop, 
and requested the parents do some of the things they saw their kids do. Yes, I did it, and my son took some pictures of me as I had of him. So I can say that my son and I worked out with the Green Ranger. Overall, he was very nice, very energetic, very enthusiastic. He left everyone with a positive message. JDF will be missed. Thanks again, Robert Ludwig, Nevada, Iowa. Robert, thank you so much for writing in. First of all, of course, thank you, as always, for your support of the show. Long-time listener. And getting this email as I was putting this episode together, this this was perfect. You know, I talked about in the top segment that tributes have been pouring in from people that have interacted with JDF or maybe just for fans of him. And this personal story is great because this I've, I've heard so many similar stories about how personable he was, how friendly he was, how good he was with kids, how much he really, you know, liked interacting with the fans, how much martial arts meant to him and, and personally, you know, Jason David Frank created his own martial arts code and would taught it in, in his, in his studio. So him, that story of him working with you and your son doing martial arts is, is wonderful. And I really thank you so much for writing this in. And I could think of no better tribute to, uh, Again, a beloved, uh, uh, you know, a, per, a beloved name in the uh, in the, the the fandom, in the Power Rangers fandom. Uh, a better way to pay tribute to them uh, at, at the time of their loss. So, thank you so much, Robert. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for writing that in, and thank you for your continued support of the show. So, speaking of support of the show, uh, social media likes, shares, thumbs up, hearts, retweets, all that jazz for the last episode. Came in from Camo Bat Dad, Dinosaur King, Jimmy from NASA, and Nathan Marchand. Together they are the Monster Island Film Vault, the Two True Freaks Podcast Network, Wacky Bronze and Silver Age Comics, Bro Rad, Robert Ludwig, the most sane man among us. How you doing, Robert? The Fan Holes Podcast, History of Comics on Film, aka Derek, Derek WC, the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, Retro Mila. Rider Club, my brother Jason Giaconetti, Crystal Lady Jessica, the Two Man Power Trip Podcast. It's really just a Power Trip Podcast. I call it the Two Man Power Trip Podcast. The Henshin Men Podcast, Dan Schwent, the Telltale Mind, Mr. Lomax, the aforementioned Billy D, aka Doc Strange from Magazines and Monsters, Tim Elliott, Chris Mounts, and Brian Severe. Thank you, everyone, for your support. As I've said many times, social media really helps the word of the show get out there, and it is very much appreciated. Uh, thank you so much for, for listening and your patronage. Also, I'd like to take an opportunity just to say, of course, that Earth Destruction Directive is for everyone. If you are interested in Japanese giant monsters or robots or uh, heroes or whatever aspect of that that we touch on here at Earth Destruction Directive, if you're a fan of that, you're, you're free to interact with this show to whatever level you feel comfortable I say it every time. We're, we're not a gatekeeping show. We're not an elitist show. We're here to give people an outlet to uh, learn and enjoy and have fun, and that's that's all this comes down to, right? And uh, again, I I don't I I, I never want to be accused of saying, well, you're not, you know, you, you you think you're the smartest guy in the world. I don't. I mean, I'll be honest with you. The the this idea that you can win a fandom doesn't make sense to me. And this idea, let's get a let's let's get a little a little drill down here. That a Westerner can win a fandom based out of Japan makes no sense whatsoever to me. I'm just going to put that out there. I'm just one guy, and I'm doing this show because I have fun with it, and I hope everybody out there is having fun. All are welcome at Earth Destruction Directive. So, what are we going to be doing next? Well, you know, Robert alluded to it, so we 
going to really, really try to get a Christmas special out. I'm not going to lie. Things are, things are kind of hectic this holiday season, but going to do my best to get a holiday special out there for everyone to enjoy. But on the next, you know, regular episode, as opposed to a guidance, uh, it is going to be Science Fiction Comics Month. Once again, Sci-Fi Comics Month every January. So we're going to be taking a look at The Trials of Ultraman from Marvel Comics. This is the second uh, Ultraman miniseries that Marvel Comics produced. This is the sequel slash follow-up to Rise of Ultraman, which we covered last January. So very much looking forward to that. It's uh, The story expands and grows, continues to uh, use that license. I don't know how much longer that license is going to last. Uh, Marvel is doing their Ultra 7 series as I'm recording this, but I haven't heard anything about a next one, so I guess we'll just wait and see. But for the time being, we do have Trials of Ultraman that we're going to cover. Of course, any news or developments, and there's been a, f- a few things coming up that we'll definitely uh, update everybody on on the next episode. And uh, so I hope everyone enjoyed this episode, taking a look at Gorath. I hope you come back next time for Trials of Ultraman. And until then, keep them stomping. This has been Earth Destruction Directive, a Daikaiju podcast, produced and created by me, Luke Giaconetti, as part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, available at twotruefreaks.com. This is a fan work celebrating the history and culture of Japanese giant monsters. All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property is copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. If you would like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I try to respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, I will read them on the show. All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find the show on your favorite podcatcher. Just search for Earth Destruction Directive. You can even leave a review on your podcatcher of choice if you'd like. You can find me on Facebook. Just search for first name Luke, last name EDD. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter. Just search for the handle at LJacone. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. The theme song for this podcast is Future Gladiator by Kevin MacLeod downloaded from Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0 license. Thanks for listening, and be sure to come back next time for more city-stomping fun here on Earth Destruction Directive. Tune in next time to hear the crusty old podcaster from Oklahoma say, There's a WTF (laughs) moment if I ever saw one.